Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. In just a moment, I'll be speaking with Professor Mildred Solomon, president of the Hastings Center, about the ethics involved in battling the COVID-19 pandemic. In about 10 minutes, our own Dave James will be speaking with Lisa Handler-Fugit, executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks. She discusses the struggles that have come from feeding the needy in the time of a pandemic. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of 10TV, Tracy Townsend takes a look at the state's efforts to reopen the economy and the decision-making process that goes into crafting guidance that allows restaurants, personal services, and other businesses to open, but do so safely. And I'll wrap up the hour speaking with Colonel Vanessa Benson about how Ford has teamed up with the Department of Defense to help those on the front line of this crisis in Ohio. All of that this hour on Columbus Perspective. As state and federal governments continue to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, there is a subset of healthcare providers and of those who study the healthcare field that are urging Congress and the White House to view the pandemic not only as a health crisis, but as a possible moral crisis. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. Today, I have on the line Professor Mildred Solomon, president of the Hastings Center, who is on to talk today about the bioethics of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Solomon, thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Hastings Center? And and I know that one of the topics the Hastings Center deals with is bioethics. Can you explain that to a layperson? Yes. The Hastings Center is an international bioethics research institute. We aim to ensure the wise use of emerging technologies that are coming out of um, biology and, and the life sciences, and we work for um, compassionate and just care in, in health care delivery. Going to the doctor isn't just a straightforward thing. There's a lot of questions that are raised about how we design uh, health policies, and the Hastings Center advises health and hospital systems on how to do that in the most effective and the most ethical way. So I know that one of the reasons we're speaking today, obviously, with the coronavirus pandemic, is that your organization, a number of bioethicists and health leaders, are talking to federal authorities, asking them to treat the COVID-19 pandemic as a matter of moral imperative. Can you break down that phrase for me um, and talk a little bit about the concept of moral imperative? The Hastings Center sees a moral imperative here for all of us in, in society at every level. There's a moral imperative for each of us as citizens to follow public health guidance and help curb the spread. There's a moral imperative for health care providers to um, design triage uh, plans that, will, that are just and equitable. Unfortunate that we have to have triage plans, but if we're faced with that reality, they have to be done appropriately and in a trustworthy way. And a moral imperative for our government to act. And that's what impelled our petition. The Hastings Center submitted an open letter that 1,400 of the nation's um, most accomplished bioethicists and leading healthcare leaders signed. They signed within 36 hours. That's how compelled they felt. And the Hastings Center submitted that petition on March 21st, asking the federal government to use the powers it has in the Defense Production Act far more robustly. Since our petition, a, few day, a little bit after our petition, President Trump did 
um, use the Defense Production Act to mandate that General Motors produce, start producing ventilators. But there is so much more that needs to be done at the federal level. That's a drop in the bucket. The administration has the power to do it. Now it has to act. So I know that part of this petition, there were uh, essentially five points that were being pushed as the immediate actions that were needed. Can you walk me through those five points? Yes. Let me start with the manufacture and distribution of essential medical supplies is our primary, was, a, was a primary goal of the petition. We have left our health care workers high and dry. We don't have the kinds of masks and gowns that will protect them. They're getting sick. They're not going to be able to care for the rest of us. And we don't have the number of ventilators that we need. It's been estimated that for every ventilator we do have, 30 people are going to, want, are going to need it. So our, the, the Hastings Center's first um, urgent call was for the creation of a federal czar who could create a strategy and, and compel or, and or incentivize the manufacture and distribution of these essential materials. The government can create mandates and directives. It can provide subsidies, loan guarantees. Um, and we also need a national database only the feds can do this. They should be helping to identify where supplies are high and could be moved to places where supplies are lower. Of course, they need to do that with information from the states, but only the feds can make this really happen. There's also the need for temporary price controls. Um, while you know competitive markets are often very good at creating efficiency, this is the kind of problem that we can't leave to the market alone and we will need at least temporary price controls to avoid price gouging. In New York, for example, the state just purchased N95 masks. Um, they usually are 80 cents a piece. The state had to purchase them for $4. Again, only the feds acting under the Defense Production Act, which gives the federal government enormous powers, can help to remedy something like that. I know that uh, that part of those those points also deal with with treatment and making sure that everyone has access to it. What are some of the recommendations having to do with with direct health care to people? Yes, we ask that everybody have um, paid sick leave. Personally, I think that all workers in the United States should have paid sick leave. That's the case in most developed countries. But the pandemic makes it urgent that we provide that. This is a problem primarily for low-wage hourly workers, the people, for example, who are delivering our food and our packages to our doors. And, um, and yet, if they get sick um, and don't have paid sick leave, they're not going to, you know, they're, they're going to show up at our doors anyway. And I've heard some troubling, this is anecdotal, but I've heard some troubling concerns that have been reported in the media that, um, that some employers are encouraging people not to, not to stay home. So uh, the Hastings Center petition uh, asks Congress to ensure that all workers will have paid sick leave. We've also asked the government to commit to payment for COVID treatment. Nobody should get this treatment and then afterwards uh, open a, a bill for an outrageous amount of co-pays. We think that that's very important to encourage treatment as well. So all of us are in this together, and all of us would benefit by providing both paid sick leave and paid treatment for COVID to anyone who gets sick. 
I know that one of the um, one of the points that that the Hastings Center and others are driving home is the idea that there is this could be a humanitarian disaster. Um, can you talk a little bit to that to that line of thinking? Yes, in two respects. First of all, the the number of people who could get sick and die if we don't all follow the public health guidance that we're getting about social distance, physical distancing and self isolation, the numbers could be quite <clears throat> quite extraordinary. It's been estimated that um, almost four hundred thousand people. Um, could die if those shelter-in-place rules are not followed. So that's very serious business for all of us. Um, but in pandemics, the, there are also um, particular groups who have particular vulnerabilities, and the Hastings Center petition was calling on Congress and the White House not to forget the most vulnerable. So these are people who may be in very tight quarters, like prisoners, or people detained in immigration centers, or the homeless, um, who don't have access to simple things like soap and water. And so we, we called on Congress to remember everybody and to develop special accommodations. I was pleased to see that um, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, did make a public statement that they would not appear in hospital emergency rooms to identify undocumented immigrants. That's really important so that anybody who has symptoms no matter their immigration status, will show up and get treated uh, and, and to create a sense of safety um, that will ensure that that happens is going to benefit all of us. Now, as a sort of parting thought, this is something that no one alive has ever seen. Uh, I mean, the folks who who are old enough to think uh, to have been alive during the Spanish flu in 1918 don't remember it, of course. But for folks out there that are having a hard time wrapping their minds around this pandemic, as someone who deals with these sort of huge big picture issues, what do you have to say to somebody that is trying to, to wrap their head around it? You know, it's... It's easy to be to think that perhaps this is an overreaction. And certainly the economic devastation that's being caused is very alarming and of great concern. But we humans are not very good at acting until we see something. It's almost like we need perception of something visual visually. So those areas of the country that aren't yet experiencing this, it's, it's understandable that they're skeptical. But when it's visible, it's too late. So the, the, um, the rate of infection is doubling every two and a half days. If you follow, We are now on exactly the same trajectory as Italy, only we're a much larger country. So the, death, the absolute number of deaths would be much greater here. Well, I guess my message would be to believe the science and to believe the experts in public health, even if our eyes and ears don't confirm it yet, knowing that when it's in our own neighborhoods, it's going to be too late. Once again, I've been speaking with Professor Mildred Solomon, president of the Hastings Center, about the moral side of the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Solomon, thank you so much for, for this insight today and for the work you're doing to try to make sure that people get proper and ethical health care. Thank you. We'll be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. <coughs> to some people... The sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. 
But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Kelsey Wiggins, a teacher in Gilmore City Bradgate School District in Iowa. Thanks to a science, technology, engineering, and math grant sponsored by Bear Fund, we renovated an old locker room into a monarch butterfly incubator, providing students with access to innovative technology that engages and inspires them. I encourage farmers to nominate a school district to apply for a $15,000 Grow Rural Education grant by visiting americasfarmers.com. Joining me on the phone, Lisa Hamler Fugit. She's the executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks. How are you? Good. How about yourself, Dave? I'm good, Lisa. Thanks for uh, talking to us. Uh, you know, before I even ask you any questions uh, based on what's going on, I, I would just like for you to tell us from your aspect what is going on. As Ohio's largest charitable response to hunger, um, even in the best of times, uh, last year we fed over 1.6 million Ohioans whose economy had never recovered from the last recession. And what we're experiencing uh, now has unprecedented demand that's resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic and the corresponding collapse of the economy. Uh, more people who now find themselves uh, seeking out emergency food resources from our food banks, food pantries, and soup kitchens. At the same time, about 43% of all of the groceries that we were able to distribute, um, that source has dried up as well. And that came from uh, both grocery stores, who now have more customers than they could ever imagine, uh, food manufacturers, wholesalers, um, as well as local food and fund drives. All of our fundraising has ceased uh, as well because of the social distancing and the need to stay at home um, and shelter in place. So it has become the perfect storm. More need, fewer resources, and, and just great uncertainty about how folks who were last week's food bank donors are now this food bank's client, this week's food bank clients, and how they're going to keep a roof over their head and food on the table. Yeah, I was wondering about that because at a food pantry, the trucks that come in full of canned goods and everything else, not only from churches and places like that, but from businesses, grocery stores, the, the grocery industry is huge and, and they have to serve their core customers now. Therefore, they can't do that as much. That's that's exactly right. I mean, we ran extensive retail pickups where product that was close to code date, wasn't selling, uh, little to no shelf life. We would run pickups all over and uh, be picking, picking up that uh, grocery store uh, or retail outlet donations and all of that has ceased. The other thing that's really happening is 
the backbone of the work that we do through our food banks and 3,600 member charities are through the committed work of our senior citizen volunteers. And because that's the population that's most at risk due to COVID-19, that they are staying home as they should uh, to protect their own health and safety. So we're now challenged to get uh, new boots on the ground. And we're very fortunate that Governor DeWine um, did deploy the National Guard. And we've had since that time more uh, National Guards. People called up. I think our complement right now is about 450 National Guards men and women that are working alongside of our food bank um, staff uh, getting food out. And we've also retooled how we're doing distribution to no-touch distributions through drive-in distributions, just trying to meet the overwhelming consumer demand for more food. Talking with Lisa Hamler-Fugit from the Ohio Association of Food Banks. On the other side of this, people who who were working low-wage jobs, 10 bucks an hour in rural areas or wherever, who were laid off and became eligible for unemployment because of the $600 a week federal supplement, their wages have actually gone up. Is, is that reducing any kind of pressure at all on you? It could be a couple of things. It could be the delay in the sheer number of people attempting to apply for unemployment compensation. Uh, As you know, that system has been uh, stretched to the limit. None of these IT systems, whether it's unemployment compensation or Medicaid or or SNAP or food stamp benefits, have ever been stress-tested to this degree. And we know that we're hearing from folks who spend literally eight hours a day trying to get through on the call centers. I know the state's doing a lot in this area. What we ask are people people just to be patient. Um, If you're able to get in, stay in the queue uh, so they can complete your application. We are hoping that these benefits, certainly in the way of unemployment compensation, but as well as SNAP benefits, a supplemental nutrition assistance program, those benefits get out as quickly as possible. So it will, we hope, relieve some of the strain. But again, there are certain segments of the population that may not be eligible or those who already receive SNAP benefits. Again, SNAP is a supplemental nutrition assistance program. It is not intended to meet 100% of a family's need for food purchasing power. It assumes that they have 30% of their income at which to supplement the benefit. We're also seeing some price sensitivity and the availability of products. I will tell you the other area, while we, we are food banks, we are being called on more to provide personal care, personal hygiene, and household cleaning items, including toilet paper. I, I can believe it. <laughs> Let's assume that in a, in a few weeks or a few months, society begins to return to some sort of normalcy. Has this kind of knocked everything off of its axis and things will be different no matter what when it comes to things like food pantries and food banks and wages and benefits in the future? Well, I, I certainly hope so. I think that, that for all of us, and we're now seeing that those who have been impacted by the COVID-19 and, and this pandemic, it, it, it has not discriminated based on one's income. It's hitting uh, higher income as well as lower income. Higher income folks, again, may have the means at which to weather the storm, so to speak. But if you are to wager in our household and you've lost all of your income, 
then I think that you'll have more empathy, certainly for what it's like for folks who work every day and play by the rules, but still are, are making decisions about whether they're going to be able to buy their life-sustaining medication, pay their rent, pay their utilities, and put food on the table. I hope it has a renewed sense that we truly are in this together um, and that we need a good and strong government response at both the national, state, and the local level. No one who works in America should be forced to stand in a food pantry or soup kitchen line in order to feed themselves and their family. Talking with Lisa Hamler-Fugitz, she's the executive director of the Ohio Association of Food Banks. It's such a bizarre situation because... As you mentioned, it's a time when you could use, uh, you know, as many volunteers in food pantries and places like that as possible, yet they can't do it. Yeah, I think that's been, and again, we have had, we have weathered and, and taken so many calls from people who are saying that, you know, I want to be involved, I want to be involved. The first thing to do is to be safe. Uh, we have got to stop the spread of um, this virus. And the way to do that is through social distancing and limiting your exposure. Uh, we have had to, again, retool our system and how we distribute. We have been proud of the fact that all of our pantries, almost all of our pantries are set up on a choice model so folks can come in and, and shop um, for what is appropriate for themselves and their families. And now we've had to convert back to what we used to do in the 80s which are prescribed um, emergency boxes of food that contain shelf-stable items, some fresh but not a lot, just to try to meet the sheer numbers of people that are coming to us. And, and again, you know, people say we've never seen lines of cars queuing, um, people getting in line at distribution that starts at 4 o'clock. We've got people that are sitting in cars waiting at 8 a.m. because they're afraid that the food bank is going to run out of food. So here again, uh, for those who have, this is the other thing I keep saying, for those who have, if you have a two-week supply of food and groceries for your family, please, please live off of what's in your pantry, what's in your refrigerator, what's in your freezer. We need to give this system a break. Grocery stores need to get restocked. They're limiting their number of hours. Now they're limiting the number of customers. We... We need people to quit hoarding food and grocery items. That's putting a tremendous strain on the system uh, for both the consumers and the retailers. It also is straining our ability to purchase food from food manufacturers who are attempting to meet the supply chain at the retail grocery level as well as online ordering. And that really is uh, a point, you know, for folks to settle down because, uh, as you mentioned, even if the money hasn't arrived yet, the the federal relief package, uh, the $1,200 checks, those are coming soon. Unemployment checks are coming soon. Most people who were working will be doing as well and in some cases better than they were before. And, And therefore, everybody just needs to kind of settle down because... It's not the end of the world. That's true. And, and I think that that's one of the most important things. And, and you've seen the pictures. I think we've all seen the pictures. We've been in grocery stores where the shelves are absolutely stripped clean. That we, we need to look at this as the long haul. We need to make sure that we're taking care of not only our, our family, our friends, but also our neighbors. People that, that may lack transportation, those who are elderly or disabled, let's take a break 
and look out for our friends and neighbors and our loved ones. Because as the governor and Dr. Atkins say, you know, we're all in this together. We are our brothers and sisters keeper, and we need to think about that. Um, Certainly, as things start to settle down, I hope that we can take a pause and reflect on what's really important. Um, And I think that this this has been a wake-up call for a lot of folks. Um, there is a growing segment, one in, one in seven Ohioans last year, uh, played by the rules, but yet didn't earn enough to be able to meet their most basic needs for things like food. And overnight, that, that number became a lot larger. In fact, we've seen 100 to 500% increases in demand for emergency food across the state. Wow. Lisa Hamler-Fugit, Executive Director, Ohio Association of Food Banks. Anything else you'd like to add? When, uh, if you've got, you know, if you've got a little extra, uh, please look out um, for your friends and neighbors. Uh, if you uh, make a large meal, if there's a senior citizen that um, may not have anybody looking after them, you know, drop off some, some food to them. Make sure that they've got what their needs are in the way of personal care, personal hygiene, household cleaning items that you may have in, in supply. And also when you get that relief check, if you can think about maybe making a small donation to your local food bank. Um, We'd greatly appreciate that so we can keep our shelf stocked as well. Lisa, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Dave. We'll be back with more on Columbus Perspective in just a moment. To protect his home and family from disaster, Steve used courage, wisdom, and his camera phone. That should do it. Way to go, Steve. By simply taking digital pictures of his family's important documents, Steve can always have them stored safely online, no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. Jelly. Jelly adjective. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on 97.1 The Fan. I'm Daniel Barnett. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Tracy Townsend in for Scott Light from the Sunday morning public affairs program Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Good morning, I'm Tracy Townsend in for Scott Light. Major budget cuts in the Buckeye State. We will hear more from Governor Mike DeWine and Lieutenant Governor Husted. But first, let's review those cuts. Some of the biggest cuts are to Medicaid, K-12 education, as well as higher education and other agencies. In total, the cuts are nearly reaching the $800 million mark. Governor Mike DeWine says they're doing the best they can to quickly rip off the Band-Aid. 
Uh, what we wanted to try to do uh, is get some cuts now, make tough decisions now. Uh, the nature of, uh, of budgets is that the longer you wait to make decisions, the tougher it is to make them. And so if you make them earlier, then it's not as, as difficult as you, as you move forward. We know in this coming year that starts in July, you know, we're going to have to dip into the rainy day fund. Uh, there, there's just no way, based on projections, that we're going to be able to avoid that. What does this mean specifically for schools? Here's how five central Ohio school districts are going to be hit by the cuts. Columbus City Schools will lose nearly $9.2 million. You can also see there on your screen substantial losses in the Dublin, Hilliard, Olentangy Local, and Westerville school districts. Universities will be hit with a 3.8% appropriation cut. The Ohio State University was hit hard by a $14.9 million cut. As you see, Ohio University and Columbus State will also lose significantly. Governor DeWine says it was a difficult decision they had to make because it affects all schools. Any cut to education is difficult. But we have an obligation to do our best to balance these cuts and to protect the most vulnerable of our students. And we intend to do that with these cuts. Further, while no one can predict future revenues or exactly where our economy is going, we need to do everything that we can to try to ensure stability and funding for our schools and some predictability as much as possible. We have an obligation to our schools, to our students, to our parents, to give them as much predictability as we can. And so if we do not make these cuts now, over the next two months, the cuts we will have to make next year would have to be more dramatic. Lots of questions about how programs and how some of those other entities are being chosen and how some of those programs were chosen over other programs. Lieutenant Governor John Husted offered this explanation. In the end, this is about providing as much stability to the people out there, because that's where most state government goes, where state government money goes, is outside of state government. It goes to schools, it goes to health care providers, and I'm going to touch on that in just a minute. But we have, to, we have to plan for that future. This, I think, really gets at the heart of it. If you look at the, the, three, pie, the, the three pieces of the pie, the gray is essentially debt service. And that's what we pay out of the state budget for debt service. The green is what you would call administration. That's all of the elected officials and, and the courts and everything that it takes, legal, administrative, all of that to administer state government. It's, it's not a huge part of the pie. The blue is everything else. That's the money that goes out the door for Medicaid providers. It goes out for K-12, through goes out for higher education and for local government. And that's the challenge that we have. That's why when you see money that gets cut from from the things that we dread cutting them from schools, um, Medicaid providers uh, and the like, it's because that's the state has to balance its budget. And that's where all the money is. Every uh, the green piece of the pie and the blue piece of the pie are getting its cuts. Everything else is debt service. New legislation did pass the House this week. It's Uh, It's aimed, rather, at limiting the authority held by the director of the State Department of Health, in this case, Dr. Amy Acton. 
The governor responded by saying creating more uncertainty regarding public health and employee safety is the last thing we need as we work to restore consumer confidence in Ohio's economy. The governor had even more to say in his recent news conference. I made it very clear that if that bill would make it through the Senate and would be put on my desk, that I would veto the bill. And I want to explain to people of the state of Ohio why. Um, the essence of this bill, or the essence of this law, excuse me, has been on the books for about 100 years. Uh, legislatures have looked at it. They've changed it some. Uh, in fact, not, not that long ago. So it's not been a, a law that's been ignored. It's been on the books. It's, it's been used. Uh, we are in the middle of an emergency now, an emergency that we have not faced for 102 years. Uh, so I, I just I, I don't understand why anyone would think that this is a great time um, to be changing the law, to be taking away the, the, the power of the executive branch uh, to protect people. Health concerns are historically something that the executive branch, that the governor's office deals with. As long as I'm governor, I intend to follow my oath and to take care of those problems. Uh, and any bill or any attempt uh, that gets in the way of our ability to protect the people of the state of Ohio uh, is a bill that... Uh, I will be be forced to veto to protect the people of the state of Ohio. We also saw the governor defend his health director in the wake of protests outside her home this past week. The governor tweeted, members of my cabinet work hard, but I set the policy. When you don't like the policy again, you can demonstrate against me. That's fair game. He went on to say, but to bother the family of Dr. Acton, that's not fair game. It's not right. It's not necessary. Dr. Amy Acton responded to the week's events with a message of support for the governor. It is an honor. It's an honor to be a public servant and to work for this governor and lieutenant governor. I mean, it's an honor to be in this moment in time. I don't think I had an appreciation for what the word public servant meant, certainly not for an elected person and it's and the pressures that they face which I can now see a lot more clearly than I did as just a citizen but also all the public servants that you are not seeing when you see me here I'm the tip of the iceberg of a team of people who work tirelessly day and night on behalf of Ohioans and you know it is I it just the virus is the thing I'm focused on right now, and I think they are. It's a daunting task, and we just, you know, you, you stay awake at night going, did I do enough today? Have I done enough? Has my team done enough? What more could we do that we've never thought about? I'm not a very bureaucratic person, and I'm not much of a rules follower in my normal life, so we're constantly trying to think of new solutions. And, and so that's honestly where all my energy is right now, is focusing on that. And again, it, it's just an honor to serve. Last week, there was another rise in jobless claims. Over 61,000 Ohioans reported unemployment, according to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. That's actually down from the week of April 26th. There were over 93,000 claims that week.
Roughly 33.5 million people have now filed for benefits in the seven weeks since the coronavirus pandemic started. We talked with the director of Job and Family Services, Director Kimberly Hall, says this has had a much harder impact on jobs than the recession in 2008 and 2009. And she says there really is no comparison to what workers are trying to handle. When you compare this to uh, prior years, there's really um, no comparison. Um, the, um, the volume of calls, 500,000 calls, for example, in one day, far exceeds what uh, we would receive in a month's period of time. These latest numbers are unsettling. The nearly 33 million Americans who filed for unemployment benefits is really the equivalent of one in five Americans who had a job back in February. On Friday, we got the latest numbers, which include a record amount of job losses in April. The economy lost up to 20.5 million jobs and unemployment soared to 14.7 percent. That is the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression. Barbershops, salon and restaurant owners rejoicing. Next, the reopening of Ohio and how the governor decided the course of action. This Girl Scout cookie season, we Girl Scouts would like to say thank you, America. Thank you, cookie cravers, thin mint enthusiasts, peanut butter patrons, shortbread devotees. Every time you take a bite of a Girl Scout cookie, it's good for us. Your coconut and caramel cravings are our chance to practice goal setting. Your midnight snacks help us learn to manage money. Your freezers aren't just full of tasty treats. They're packed with entrepreneurship. That's right, entrepreneurship. You probably can't taste the business ethics or the decision making or the people skills but they're in there in every single mouthful every time you eat what's in the box we learn how to think outside of it so raise a glass of milk and raise our chances to reach our potential eat up america we're counting on you i'm catalina i'm melody i'm katie i'm devin i'm hannah i'm abby i'm juliana i'm nicole i'm olivia i'm colette i'm stefania and we approve this message the girl scout cookie program think outside the box from the Department of Health were so collaborative and it wasn't you can't do this or you must do this. It was how can we first and foremost put safety first, but we had to put realism into it. If you've read anything about the Tennessee reopening with restaurants, I'm pretty confident whoever wrote that has never worked in a restaurant. It's not going well and there's a reason because it wasn't practical. Governor DeWine released a schedule of what's going to open to the public and when. Here's that schedule. On Friday, May 15th, spas, salons, and barbershops will reopen, as well as restaurants and bars, but only their outside dining areas. On May 21st, those restaurants and bars will be allowed to uh, open to guests and have those guests inside their establishments. This is a big step for the state, and Governor DeWine expressed that it's a gamble but he says he believes it's the best course of action. The risk is up. The more contacts that we have, uh, the more that we do, the more risk there is. Um, that we can expect. Uh, we are now, we think, at about a one-to-one -one ratio, uh, which simply means that on an average, one person who is infected with the virus in Ohio infects one other person. If we could get below that, then you start moving, move, moving downward. Um, we can expect 
that the opening up of this economy is going to take those numbers higher. But what we have to do is do everything in our power not to let those go very, very high. Um, and a lot of this depends on, on what we do. It's a moving month. Things are changing. And um, but we're going we're gonna to live with the coronavirus health consequences for a while. The economic consequences may last even longer. Uh, and even as over 90 percent of the economy will open up in this month, most businesses will not fully recover this year, and some of them may never recover. Uh, that's not because of anything that we're talking about here. That's because we're in the midst of a global pandemic and a global economic recession. The governor had a lot of help on this project, as you can imagine, from experts at the Ohio Department of Health and restaurant owners in this area. We did hear from Treva Weaver, who's the chair of the Ohio Restaurant Advisory Group, during the last news conference. She gave us an idea of how a return to restaurants is going to look. Let's start with space. So restaurants and bars are going to be asked to create a floor plan that it complies with current social distancing guidelines. For example, under the current mandate, there are parties of 10 or less that would be seated together. And then each party is then going to be separated by either six feet or a physical barrier. So rather than having a hard and fast percentage like some states are doing, our advisory board actually focused on safety, not necessarily a specific number. So what do we mean by physical barrier? That could be uh, fine dining, for example. You could have a high booth back that's almost like a wall. Or in some locations, they're using plexiglass uh, that that's being installed to separate. So we wanted to give each owner an opportunity to comply with those constraints um, within their unique space. What about waiting areas? You might be asked to wait in your car um, for either seating or maybe food pickup, or there might be a designated area now for queuing. And we would ask customers to just comply with those guidelines and be sensitive to those guidelines. Um, a buffet bar or a salad bar uh, will now be served to you rather than self-service and there'll also be some six feet guidelines that are placed in, in those queuing lines as well. We also learned more about new guidelines employees will have to follow when they're serving customers. While employees will be required to wear masks in certain positions, there are exemptions that will, for the restaurant industry, mostly apply to back of house. But if you see employees not wearing masks, understand these are for safety risks. One simple example is you don't want someone standing over a hot grill wearing a mask. So just understand that these restaurants are complying, but there are some exceptions that will be listed. And you, um, as a customer, as a guest, you might be asked to wear a mask. That's going to be at the discretion of the owners, and we would ask that you would respect those decisions. Um, another thing that you might see are gloves. Um, this is an interesting topic. I know the gloves, it kind of makes everybody feel like Superman. They can touch anything. but And it gives this false sense of protection. And I know the viewing public um, sees that, and there's a lot of concern around it. But there are very clear guidelines in food safety code that already exist today. And we as a team re are returning. Our recommendation is to return to those guidelines. Um, in many cases, we all ask our staff, put gloves on everybody, even though we know that's not necessarily best practice. Hand washing is and will continue to be the gold standard. And therefore, our committee is recommending um, that we follow those guidelines. So you're likely not going to see gloves um, on your cashiers or on your servers. 
reaction to these developments is split. Some people are excited about the reopenings. Others, though, say they are wary. State Representative Kristen Boggs says it needs to be a move that is certain and not something that will pull the rug from underneath these businesses. The one thing that I am consistently hearing from the restaurant uh, community is don't open us up and then shut us down again. Like if you're going to allow us to open, we need the security to know that we are going to be open for the long term because what is going to be devastating to our restaurants is if they have to order all the food and get back all the staff and then there's a shutdown, they lose all of that perishable food. They lose all of those goods that they um, have just acquired in order to start ramping back up. And so I think we need to be really careful with that industry in particular that is dependent on perishable food and dependent on supply chains that you can't just turn them on and off with a switch. You know, we need to make sure that if we are opening up restaurants, we're doing it in a way that they can stay open, they have stability and consistency, and that they know and can reasonably plan for the future. We know a lot of you are ready for a haircut. It's been about two months. Perhaps you can't wait to get your nails done. And that is soon going to be possible. Deborah Penzone of Charles Penzone Salon says there are going to be changes. She's on that team of beauty and nail salon, barbershop, tanning and spa owners working with the governor to get those businesses open again and safely. Walk-in appointment or the appointment, that's the only person that enters into that facility. Unless it is um, a child, of course, and a parent needs to come or if they need a caregiver with them. And if they have a lobby or a waiting area, you're going to see the markings or social distancing there. You won't see the magazines or product testing um, or self-serve beverages out in the waiting areas. And, um, you know, we'll be donning our professionals. We'll be donning the mask and uh, really asking that the clients and customers come with their face covering or their mask, especially with our services um, being so personal and, and so close, um, delivering that service to that guest. And some facilities and some locations might have, you know, it mandatory that you wear that mask or face covering when you get your service done. Penzone also talked about how employees will have to help with keeping their respective workplaces clean and sanitized. You're governed by the Ohio State Board of Cosmetology and Barbering Board. So we do a lot of sanitation and take a lot of cat classes and, and online education all the time. So, of course, we're going to go above and beyond uh, with that as well to keep everyone safe and make sure that we're ready for uh, that customer. The governor's original plan for reopening involved three days in the month of May where restrictions would be lifted on the 1st. We saw how hospitals opened up for elective surgeries that don't require an overnight stay. Dental practices and veterinary office offices were also allowed to open. On the 4th, general office environments opened again as long as they could continue to abide by social distancing guidelines. And then on Tuesday, we will see some area retail stores open, including retailers at two of the Columbus area's largest shopping malls. Polaris Fashion Place plans to reopen next week after closing in late March. In a release, a company spokesperson says Polaris Fashion Place remains focused on providing a safe and enjoyable experience. New guidelines include covering your mouth and nose with a cloth face cover and following each individual tenant or shop's COVID-19 policies. 
Easton Town Center has announced new guidelines and requirements as it begins to reopen starting May 12th. Shops will begin to reopen and provide curbside pickup, and more than 20 restaurants will operate for delivery and carryout. Easton will be closed on Mondays until further notice to allow for deep cleaning. Management at Easton address the mask requirement in a statement that says, as a destination that hosts a significant number of people, our face covering requirement is being implemented at this time to diminish the risk of spreading the virus and to protect the most vulnerable populations in our community. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen so many acts of kindness coming up. You are going to see how this woman is paying kindness forward with her stimulus check. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We wanted to end our show on a high note. When we think of frontline workers, healthcare providers like nurses and doctors are often the people who come to mind. There are plenty of other essential workers who one Central Ohio woman thought could use a thank you. 10TV's Lacey Crisp explains. The theater here in London can't show movies anymore, but they can serve food. Well, that gave Dina Pierce an idea about how she could support a local business and thank city employees. Just like a lot of other businesses where you know, struggling. We're fortunate enough that our business plan has it so that we can uh, make food that people come out of their way to get. Across town, longtime London resident Dina Pierce considers herself very lucky. I'm working from home. I'm collecting a regular paycheck and it felt kind of awkward to me to get the government uh, stimulus check. That feeling led to a very generous idea. I'd written a couple of checks uh, to some nonprofits, and then one day I looked out my window and the uh, garbage truck was going by and I, it dawned on me that these are essential workers. She called up Rob at the theater and asked if she could order lunch for city workers like the sanitation and wastewater crews who normally don't get much recognition. Having uh, a nice little boost in the business was, was certainly a, a very, very uh, welcome thing. And, uh, and I thought this was a wonderful, generous uh, thing that uh, Dina has done. So about two dozen meals were sent to the city. For her to pick that group really meant a lot to us, and it meant a lot to all those departments, and they were very thankful. A small gesture that had a big ripple effect. I do hope this inspires people to pay it forward in some way if they're able because um, a lot of businesses and individuals are hurting right now. I know Dina didn't want any recognition, but what do you two gentlemen have to say to her? 
Dina knows we love Dina and and she's a great member of the of the community and the mayor tells me this is just one of the many acts of kindness he has seen in London he hopes to see many more in London Lacey Crisp 10 TV News Again, courtesy of 10TV, that was the Sunday morning public affairs program Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Have you ever experienced a wish come true? For a child battling a critical illness, a wish come true can be a turning point. One song, one dance, one game, one adventure, one moment changes everything. Make-A-Wish needs your support to grant the wish of every eligible child. Visit wish.org now to help grant more life-changing wishes. Together, we can transform lives one wish at a time. Healthcare providers around the country are on the front lines of battling the coronavirus pandemic. And during this time, we're hearing about a lot of businesses who are going through unconventional steps, perhaps, to help provide the equipment that these medical personnel, these first responders need to stay safe on the job. Among those people who are responding are the Ohio National Guard. And right now, Ford is among companies that is uh, changing their pace a little bit to help provide that equipment to those who are serving right here in the Buckeye State. Thanks for staying tuned to Columbus Perspective. I'm Daniel Barnett. Today, I'm speaking with Colonel Vanessa Benson, retired from the U.S. Army, now serving as Ford Military Ambassador. And we're going to talk about Ford's partnership with the Department of Defense, known as Proud to Honor. Colonel Benson, thank you for joining me today. Hi, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, all things considered. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Doing great. So yeah. uh, today we're talking a little bit about the the Proud to Honor program, and it's National Military Month. And uh, I know that you're here talking today on behalf of Ford. And can you tell us a little bit about that Ford partnership with the De- Department of Defense and the Proud to Honor program? Yes, I'd love to. So, you know, right now we have 1.3 million active duty service members, and it's exciting that you know, these service members are so proud to serve our country. And Ford, we are so proud to honor them. And so Operation Proud to Honor came about as a way of Ford to give back to our service members. We kicked it off uh, last Veterans Day where we honored a retired Marine who happened to be a double amputee, and we surprised him. Rocky Blyer from from the Pittsburgh Steelers and I uh, showed up at his house and gave him tickets to a Steeler game. And it was a way just to give back, surprise a service member. And, you know, we kicked off that campaign last year, and uh, we had, had planned to visit about five to seven bases across the country with a really cool uh, drive-and-ride experience for our service members. With, with the coronavirus, that kind of put that plan to a halt, and we have moved to um, donating 200,000 face shields to the Department of Defense. And we, we have been working with the Secretary of Defense um, in order for DOD to accept this gift, we finally got approval from the Department of Defense to allow the military to accept these face shields. So we have been working with uh, frontline uh, military that's on the front line to try and get these face shields out to where they're needed. So we have almost shipped all 200,000 out to different places around the world, including uh, we've got some going to Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Kuwait. Um, some are, we had 50,000 that made it to Fort Hood, Texas. 
We have some going to the USS Gerald Ford. And we just had some ships um, to New Hampshire where there's 600 uh, National Guard activated, and they're using them um, right now to help with distributing PPE, distributing meals, um, testing. Um, They're helping with unemployment sites. So these face shields are really being uh, used by our military on the front line, and they're very grateful that Ford Motor Company has decided to give this gift um, and this, this honoring you know, honoring our military with, with, with a much needed gift right now, a face shield. And some of those have made their way to uh, bases here in Ohio, correct? So for um, Ohio, we, spent, we have sent a thousand face shields to Ohio based on the governor's need to support um, the military efforts with the clinics and the prisons there. So the Ohio National Guard has brought on 360 National Guardsmen on orders to support the FEMA COVID-19 efforts. So 1,004 face shields have arrived in uh, Ohio to support this effort um, across small clinics, the prisons, so it's very exciting that uh, the Ford Face Shields will be utilized in Ohio. So the, the governor, the governor's office requested it, and they actually thought it was going to be higher than it was, and it, it ended up not, you know, spiking where they thought they were. But 360 guardsmen um, on orders. Can we talk a little bit more about the transition from, you know, obviously automobile manufacturing to the yeah. the manufacturing of this PPE of face shields? How when did that happen, and how yeah. does that sort of transfer work? So our plant, Troy Design Manufacturing Plant in Plymouth, Michigan, on March 23rd, started producing these face shields, and to date, we've we've built and shipped more than 10 million face shields out and right now they're producing every 10 seconds they're producing a face shield and they were very excited to um to produce 200,000 for our military and um we have a lot of veterans working in that plant so we were excited it was an exciting mission for Ford um to to donate 200,000 face shields to the Department of Defense and I know that obviously what you're what you can tell us is anecdotal but uh, what are the ways in which these face shields are being used here at home to to help in the fight against the coronavirus? So some of some of the places that um, we're distributing them are you being used in medical and dental facilities on the base, on dining facilities, and a lot of them are being used for force protection with our security forces and our military police um, that that guard the bases and you know all bases are you know secured. So a lot of the face shields are, are being used in that enforcement um, uh, front line of enforcement for our bases. And I know Ford is is dedicated to hiring a lot of veterans. So this is a case in which veterans are able to to help active military, yes? Absolutely. So um, last year, our our Ford dealers, there's over 3,300 Ford dealerships in the country, uh, were ranked Military Times Best for Vet Companies. To work for, so we really we really work hard to try and have a smooth transition with our military into our, our dealerships, and it's a it's an honor to be ranked on the Military Times Best for Vet Companies. All right, well, Colonel Benson, thank you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate your time, and uh, stay warm and comfortable down there in Florida. Thank you. You have a great day. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of 97.1 The Fan. You can tune into Columbus Perspective each Sunday at 6 a.m. on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And each Sunday at 7 a.m. on WBNS FM Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Once again, I'm Daniel Barnett, and this has been Columbus Perspective.